Hello, I'm Mark and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. So in this episode, we're going to think about what you can do to get the best possible mark for your amazing impact. Um, so uh, you are entering into REF 2021, you think you've got a great impact case study, you've drafted it, but uh, but actually, uh, is there something you could do with that great evidence you've got, uh, hopefully, and that great story that you've got to tell to write that in a way that is going to get you the marks that you believe you deserve? Now, the evidence that we've got in the paper that we've just um, read to you in the last uh, two episodes that have gone out this week alongside this provides us with uh, the strongest, most robust evidence that we have to date of what actually made the difference between four-star versus low-scoring case studies in REF, 2020, REF 2014. And whilst that is a retrospective evidence base, and uh, we need to judge that as, I would argue, the minimum for what you need to do at the top end, it's going to be hard at this time round. There's a granularity in that analysis, I think, that is incredibly useful. Now, uh, Bella Reichardt, who's uh, here with me, uh, lead author of the paper, uh, and myself, we both do uh, impact um, uh, case study reviews uh, for universities across the UK. Um, and what we're going to do in this episode is to think about how we apply the evidence in our research to actual case studies. Uh, and we're going to go through the structure of the impact case study template. And uh, we're going to anonymize these, but we'll just go from our own experience of the kind of really common mistakes that we see, uh, the most common suggestions that we make, uh, and some of the things that we like best that we've seen from uh, other people's practice. Uh, and we'll try where possible to refer back to, to the paper. So you get a sense of how this evidence base can be operationalized. So hopefully this is going to be useful. And uh, let's start with the heading. Uh, now, uh, I should bear in mind at this point, actually, uh, we potentially may or may not agree with each other. Um, uh, one of the things I really enjoy about uh, reviewing with you, Bella, is that you often pick up things that I would miss, um, partly because of your linguistics training and expertise, and just because you're a different person, you know, two sets of eyes, it's, it's always a good thing. Um, and we quite often um, come together to discuss quite tricky bits of feedback where we're just not that sure and there's lots of different ways it could go. And we don't always agree, but uh, I think the discussion is always instructive and quite often there are just two very different ways of doing it. So let's, let's see where this goes. So yeah, shall we try the, the title to start with? Uh, what makes a good title for you? It's a bit flat to say informative, but um, that is what it should be. It should tell me what the impact was, mm -hmm. um, what you did. Uh, ideally, if you can get some reach in there as well, kind of, kind of an indication of what you're looking at. But that's optional. The most important thing is what is the impact. I've recently seen quite a few titles that look like research project titles, mm -hmm. and that's not going to work for an impact case studies. I need to know what you did to what effect. Yeah. Yeah, so I absolutely agree. And I think there are three things that I see. I, I see research-based ones. Um, so it looks like a research paper title. Um, even worse than that, a textbook 
this te textbook title, so it's like a thematic kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. uh, the, the second thing is, is pathway, and actually if you've got a, a, an impact case study title that is effectively your pathway, then I'm instantly signposting the reader to the fact that this is going to be a low-scoring case study that's going to talk all about the pathway without ever telling we, me what the, the impact is, which uh, based on our research is uh, pretty much the number one reason for doing badly last time around in REF 2014. So that's uh, not an impression I want to give. Um, so the key thing is that you know, whatever else is in there, that there is an impact in the title. I get a sense of what the impact is from the title because that's the point. It's an impact case study. And one way you can um, try and make that visible once you know what impact to put in the title is to try and remember to use a verb um, such as, uh, this, this is a really flat example because I can't give any real ones, but influencing policy on da 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 in this and this and that way, or changing uptake of whatever it is in this kind of area. Um, some kind of verb helps to make the link to what your role was in generating the impact. And I like to, I like to see that too. Yeah, and then you've got the question of how strong we, we, we make this. Is it, so is it changing or is it influencing or is it actually shaping um, uh, or something like that? And, and there's a, a lot of discussion uh, I have with, with case study authors about, well, actually, you know what, shaping is too, too you're going too far because it didn't yeah. really shape the entire thing. But we did inform it. Um, well, maybe, uh, maybe you can move from inform to influence. Maybe that's a little bit stronger. So, so yeah, getting, so it's not over-claiming yeah. and sounding too, kind of, yeah. Yeah, what you're saying there about those words, I agree with that um, um, scale that mm. you just said, you know, with that from informing on the one hand to shaping on the other. I, I you know, I agree with that. However, um, not necessarily in the title. If all you did was inform, mm -hmm. that may be part of, part of your impact, mm. but informing, I would hesitate to put that in the title. It doesn't look very strong. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Unless you've got something stronger that you can put in the title. Yeah. 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 I agree. So, so I'm, I'm constantly trying to change it up. So let's let's replace informing with something stronger, um, and and go for and the strongest. Stop we can. where you over. But if you've got something that actually looks weak, yeah, absolutely, a bit in the title because like, instantly I'm signposting. Yeah, this is going to be weak. <laughs> Uh, length as well, um, I, I think fairly short is good when you're getting uh, to the end of the second line, um, you're beginning to lose yeah. track of what this is all about. Uh, and I've seen three line uh, titles and that's definitely not a great plan. Yeah, I would like to be able to read the title once and know <laughs> what it's about. Yeah. The minute I have to start a reading, well, the second I have to start reading a title for the second time <laughs> is um, already a minus point. Cool, so let's move to the, the summary yeah. then. Um, so uh, if you haven't listened to the end of the, the last episode, let's just um, run through some of the key things here. I, I provided a rule of thumb, uh, which is that I think that approximately 50% um, should be a, a kind of a minimum for the, the, the amount of this which is dedicated to impact. And for me, that's a rule of thumb because uh, the focus, again, should be on impact. And, um, and it's very common, I see, that, uh, that it's just the last sentence, that it's actually about the impact. And you've got all of this, you've got a problem statement, and now we've got the research, and now we've got the pathway, and we've got more pathway, and then, yeah, uh, what you can say in one sentence is fairly limited. 
Uh, what are some of the things in the, that we want to see in terms of impact? So yeah, I've got some other stuff in there, uh, maybe a problem statement, a bit of research, a bit of pathway, but the, the key focus is we've, we've got to the, the impact. Um, what are the key things that you want to see um, in relation to impact in the summary? I would like to see what the nature of the impact was. So I'm making a distinction here between type of the impact, I'm making this up, but between type of the impact and nature of the impact. So someone might say, and in this way, we have had impact on, uh, we have had uh, economic impact and social impact and whatever else impact on this community. And I'm saying, okay, so but in what way have you had economic impact? Uh, in what way have you had societal impact? Um, yeah, so what we want the specifics a little bit <coughs> rather of than generality. Content rather than heading. And it is a summary. So you can see why people go to let's just summarize with these these very vague um, categories, but it's so bland, I don't know what it is. I've got yeah. no idea really what's going on here. So I think if you've got lots and lots of um, different impacts that you need to talk about and you can't fit them all into the summary, then I think it's better to highlight a, a headline or anchor Yes. Uh, your, your most impressive one, um, and to give us a, a sense of the shape of that, what it was, and why it was significant, and how far-reaching it was, and then allude to the fact that there are all these other uh, allied impacts which you'll be able to read about. But you've got a sense of, huh, that's impressive. Wow, I can't wait to read about that. I get, I can get my my head around that. Oh, and there's more. Fantastic. Rather than, yeah, just vagueness. Yes, fully agree with that one. Um, also, one danger if the impact is hidden in the last sentence, the next thing that happens is you have to read the underpinning research and then the nature of the impact just kind of is difficult to keep in mind while reading the research section um, if the reader doesn't quite know what the impact is going to be. So it's I, I would say it is a very good idea to have... Uh, what Mark just outlined, um, a good nature of it, and, and uh, how to say, um, a good hook into the impact, making me curious about the impact and giving me enough to remember what I'm about to yeah. read. Yeah, yeah. While so. I pause that and mm -hmm. read the research that may have led to that. Yeah, brilliant. So uh, I think in terms of the language, I'm, I'm wanting this to be fairly clear and simple so i'm going to be able to yes. read this quite easily and and yeah the full description can be a bit more technical a bit more involved a bit more in depth but i want this to, to be quite just yeah I'm, I'm reading it i'm scanning it great that's what this is all about um and there's something like you said that hook that, that i'm now great i want to go and see what this is and i quite often find myself instantly skipping to really that sounds crazy i can't believe that it's actually that impressive and i'm instantly going and looking for the evidence and huh okay great there's the evidence okay so i am going to trust that what they're saying in this that's that's impressive and then i'm going and reading the underpinning research but uh, but yeah it's nice when you get that kind of wow factor yeah and just on the uh presentational issue and language issue um acronyms in the sec in section one mm. i would say only if it's something like nhs <laughs> Um, any other acronyms that you're going to use a lot, definitely spell them out in section one, but perhaps consider spelling them out again at the beginning yeah, of section four to remind the reader of what on earth you were talking about. And I, I find that quite often that I get to section four, having read section two in between, and I mm. think, 
oh, what was this again? I think you have to find it, but I don't remember. Yeah. And then I doing, I'm doing a, a word search for it, but if it's in paper, I can't do that. And then it's just really frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So uh, let's move to the underpinning research section. So we've got an indicative maximum of 500 words. We know in REF 2014, most people exceeded that a bit, but we're looking at, I think, was it 560, 530? Yeah, that kind um, of thing. Of an average length of yeah for high and low um, no significant difference um, so um, so 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 yeah on that word limit um, for me anything over six hundred words is definitely too much and I'm asking what could be cut um, and for something particularly complex yeah I'm not going to rule out that you might have to spend more than six hundred words but uh, for me as soon as you're you're up in in that uh, range you're potentially taking away space that you could have used in section four, which uh, means that you've got less room to really evidence and sell the impact. Uh, this is an eligibility check after all, so let's keep this as, as short as possible. And if you can do this fairly short, um, and in some cases, yeah, I've only got one or two papers that I'm having to describe, then there's nothing wrong with actually doing it in 300 words. Yes. However, I would also say, you know, because you mentioned the um, evidence that we have from the 2014 case studies, that was a page limit of four. Mm -hmm. Now we have a page limit of five. Mm -hmm. So I, my, my conclusion was slightly different. I would have said, you know, 500 to 600 is fine. Mm -hmm. If you have to go slightly over 600, it's less of a problem than it would have been last time. True. And if you do, if, well, if you keep... Because the indicative word limits are the same as last time round, um, but the page limit has increased. Mm. And then there's section A, which may take up to half per page, uh, depending on how many people you have to put in. Um, but essentially, you've got half or three quarters of a page more to play mm -hmm. with. Mm. If all of that goes into section, section four, then yes, as Mark says, it's great. You have a lot more space to evidence your great impact, but also it kind of skews the balance a little bit. And um, that's not a given, but um, I would be less concerned with 600-word research yeah. section. No, I think we're probably splitting hairs in terms of the, the, yes. the precise <laughs> number, but I think the, the emphasis here is, strategically speaking, um, uh, section four is where you're going to get the majority of your, of your marks. Yes, you need to be able to corroborate it. So yeah, we're going to have some session section five. Yes, I need to be able to summarise and signpost it so I've got a great title and summary. But ultimately, it's going to hinge on whether those great claims I've made in my summary are actually evidenced. Uh, and so for me, uh, of those extra pages, I want to put as much of that extra space to section four as I can. I think strategically that's going to get you the most work, the most marks. But to be honest, most researchers struggle to to get to to, to five hundred words, and I'm not, not going to punish anyone for it. Yeah, get down <laughs> yeah. to that. Um, so uh, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to punish you if you've got six hundred. That's fine. But yeah, seven hundred, eight hundred. No. Yeah, that's that's no. an issue definitely. Yeah. Can I just ask you a live question? Yeah. yeah. Um, um, about a case study which actually I'm having a chat with the author about tomorrow. I'm not going to yeah. say who and where, <laughs> obviously. But um, they were putting a lot of the pathway into the underpinning research section. Mm. And initially I thought, oh, that's a you know clever way. And then I found that actually they were describing the project, their pathway project that arose from the research mm. and that they distinguished from the impact, mm -hmm. which we would say normally, yes, great. But 
all the kind of details and the reach of the pathway project was in section two. And that was getting a little bit too detailed for me and getting a little bit too far away from the impact, sorry, from the research that they were supposed to be describing. And then I started section four and I thought, I'm missing the details of the project here. Mm. And then I thought, oh yeah, that's because, because you put them in section two. Yeah, and because yeah. of the way my brain works and where they ex where I expect, you know, because I'm so wired to this template by now, <laughs> where I expect the information. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's a really what, common What would be your take on that? Yeah, so there's not one right answer on it, is there? But um, it's a really common thing, especially for very applied research yes. and action research type yes. projects. And this is, yeah, in that case, it's, it's yeah. one of It's those. main panel C, I think I can say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so, um, so what, what you've got here is that the reality in an action research kind of project is that, well, the, the impact is the research and the research is the impact and the two are intimately entwined. So this is kind of people power type stuff and these people have come and they've got this agenda and they've asked you to help them with it and you're researching yes. as you go and, and you're writing that up in terms of your, your research and you discover you're writing the pathway to impact because the pathway to impact was the research and yeah. the two are totally fused. And, and so for a panel like that, I think you can probably get away with it because they understand the nature of that research, but I think that it could be problematic. Um, uh, so th there are two reasons. One is the reason that you've given, which is that you expect to see the pathway. Just the effect on the reader, which is my yeah, view. So you're looking for that pathway normally at the beginning of, of section four, which is where in the template it suggests that you explain what the pathway was. Um, but, but secondly, there's, a, there's an issue potentially in terms of how the research is perceived. Now, in the REF 2021 template, uh, it tells us that we need to put um, a, a justification of the quality of the research in section three. Uh, but in REF, 2020, REF 2014, that was integrated into section two. And a lot of people I know are doing that again. Um, and, and you can do it in different ways. So in terms of articulating the quality and uh, especially around the, the robustness and the rigor of the research, people are doing that as they're talking through um, section, section two and integrating that in. And I, I think that's fine. And by the end of it, you've got this really clear impression. Wow, this was properly rigorous stuff. Great. And that, that box is, is ticked. But I think the, the danger is that, um, depending on, on my sub-discipline and my perception, I'm reading through what is meant to be research, and I'm thinking, this isn't research, this doesn't look like research according to how I would describe research, where is the, the generation of new knowledge, what is original about this, this is a bunch of people uh, doing a bunch of stuff with stakeholders, and, and so it creates this impression that, hmm, is this research, isn't it research, and, and, and are there issues with the quality? So what I recommend to, to action researchers is to do a very uncomfortable thing and actually uh, divorce the, the research from the pathway and the impact um, and create a more linear narrative, even if that wasn't quite the reality of how it worked, because you have got these aspects and as you go back through your papers, you can pull out the things that, yeah, that is the original significant academic contribution, and I'm going to pull that aspect of the paper out and articulate that now as the research finding. And then all that other part of the paper that was about then how we developed that and used that and applied that and how it made a difference. Uh, I'm going to then pull that out and separate it and put it in as a, a short pathway to impact section or yeah, I might label it as pathway to impact at the beginning of section four or I might have it as an unlabeled introductory section. Um, and then there's this kind of distinction of, yeah, that was those, that's the research, those are the research findings, it's clearly 
uh, two star or above, and now here's the pathway and the impact. But yeah, some case study authors, uh, you'll find out how it goes tomorrow, uh, yeah. find, find that quite problematic. And you know what? Ultimately, yeah, you, you can make an ethical decision about how strategic I want to be versus how realistic I want to be in terms of, well, that was the messy, complex reality of how it was, and yeah, go for it. But um, it may not go well. I think that's a key issue that you just said because in the guidance, the RF panel are very clear that research and impact, that the relationship does not have to be linear. Mm -hmm. I remember highlighting this in my paper copy mm -hmm. of the guidance. So if you are listening to this and thinking, but RF says it doesn't have to be linear. No, it doesn't. But it will help the reader if you, well, guide the reader through what is going on and make it look... Well, not make it look like it was linear, but um, tweak it, tweak the narrative, not away from reality necessarily, but to make it easier for the reader to slot that into the expectations about how research and impact may be related. Yeah, I mean, you can you can argue with this is it's narrative cohesion, and, and there are lots of different ways of of getting a cohesive narrative. And one is I'm going to give you a temporal narrative of I did this and then I did that, and that was that was reality. Yeah, it doesn't have to be temporal. But there's a, a many other ways that I can argue um, of how this all fitted together, and and so for me, there is a line uh, that you cross when this is no longer representing reality, but. To say I made a, an academic contribution and these were my research findings, and then to say that we then use these insights to do something, and I'm separating them and linearizing them, for me that's not ethically problematic, um, generally speaking. Uh, but but it creates a clearer narrative. So if I'm in a hurry, I can see right. So I want to know what was the impact and how was this underpinned by good research. So there's a the research, there's the impact. I can see how they link. Great job done. So I'm just making it an easier job for 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 the reviewers when I when I linearize it. And going back to our evidence from the paper. Uh, I think it's with the qualitative uh, analysis in particular, but um, there have been other papers uh, and interview-based research um, uh, in different panels. I think the most interesting one was, was in the maths unit of assessment. Um, Laura Meher did, wrote a paper on this. Um, yeah, lots of different bits of evidence, in, including ours, that suggest that the high-scoring ones very often linearised and simplified this narrative compared to when you interview the researchers, uh, what was for them a much messier, kind of complex, circular uh, narrative um, uh, as it felt from their perspective. Yeah, that's helpful advice. <laughs> so other things in the underpinning research, um, uh, I think... The, there are essentially two things that, that you need to do in this. So it's communicating your research findings as they underpin the research and communicating their quality. And you can begin to put in elements about quality in section two. Um, you would have been asked to do it in section three, so I'm maybe going to do it properly there or use some indicators there just to back this up. But, uh, but for me, the, the, the key thing is that I've got research findings, and I see a lot of case study authors who do this by, uh, with subheadings. So these are the three findings, or three themes, uh, for example, that kind of stuff. So I can quite quickly see, right, that theme, that finding, and huh, yeah, that clearly links back uh, through to this impact and that impact, and, and you've got that connectivity. Uh, and, and then, of course, in, in the text as well, you're referring back to the to the research and to to those sections. So, so you get that all uh, all adding up. But 
uh, instead, quite, quite often in, in, the, in the weaker ones, um, uh, there's this big, big, long narrative before you get to the research findings, or the research findings are buried in this really, really dense, dense text. Yes. So I don't want all of the process, and this is one of the findings we, we found, uh, our, our fourth finding in, in, the, in the paper, that the low-scoring ones um, have all of this stuff to do with the, the process um, and, and, and the outputs, and, and actually I want to know what the findings were, and I don't want to know all your findings, I want to know the findings that are pertinent to the impact. So make it clear, make it obvious, uh, and, and keep your eye on the ball in terms of what you're asked to do in this action. Yeah, <laughs> what should we about there, I think? I think in terms of linguistics, so I'm interested in what you think. This is the, the section where I think you can get away with the most disciplinary jargon. Um, uh, yeah, we don't want this to be completely unreadable, but there is often quite a lot of quite challenging stuff. Um, and there's a limit to this, because quite often I read yes. this and I'm just like, what? And I've read it three times and I still have no idea what this research was. But at the same time, quite a lot of disciplines, you just can't get away, it's unavoidable. You're going to have to use the word for this really complex process. Yeah, and that's where I'm being honest as a reviewer. And um, if I ever happen to be commenting on your case study, then you might find comments in the margin saying, Will this be obvious to anyone working in your UOA? Because will we this, don't know that, yeah. and maybe it is. And yeah. I phrase it like that by saying, well, will this be obvious? Will this be clear? Is this term, I mean, you'll know the answer to that, but um, will is this term used in the same way in different corners of your disciplines? Things like that as well. Mm. Uh, will it be so? So will it be obvious? That's the one thing. Will it be obvious? Do they have to think about it? If they would have to think about it, make it such that they don't have to think about it, but can just read and understand it. And will it be obvious what you mean by this term or what you mean here? Hmm. Um, not will it be obvious what it might mean to someone else working in the same UOA using the different using the same term but in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Good, so let's move to references, references to the research. Um, so, Bella, what are your key bits of advice that you, you give on a regular basis on this? This was something that I think was, was more analysed in our thematic analysis, because this yeah. was actually extracted and removed from the... the from yeah, the that was not part linguistic. of the linguistic yeah. analysis because it doesn't really contain <coughs> language choices as such, mm. not in 2014 anyway. Mm. Um, I think I'll refer that back to you because what I say, you know, the comments that I make here are what I've learned from you, so I'll let you say that. Yeah, okay, well, so, so first there's a, there's a space issue. I, there's, there, are, there are more and less space-consuming ways of formatting these lists. Um, so uh, we've got one sitting in front of us with lots of subsections in terms of whether they're journal articles or book chapters or whatever else, um, and that's yeah, it doesn't I don't need to know that. Um, it's a first draft though, so yeah, at okay. that stage maybe it maybe it might be okay. But I think it's, it's you, you've just wasted some space there with a heading and a space between the subheadings. Yeah, um, they should not submit it like this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and well, maybe what I'm doing is I'm now signposting, turning my discipline. Huh, there's maybe some weak stuff here. There's some book chapters. Maybe I need to to yeah. I don't know. What, yeah, that's it something doing? that I say. Is this a prestigious mm. avenue in your discipline? 
so so that then let's have a think about that in terms of, of indicators so 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 it's one of the things we need to do is is to, to indicate the quality of the research and we're asked to do that and prestige or publication outlet is one one indicator that we can use but of course highly controversial um so um uh, so in terms of the, the formatting of this i've got lists of outputs uh, and quite a lot of people will then add lists of indicators and one of the the most common indicators people will include will be funding. Um, now, uh, you have to submit every single bit of funding um, as part of the metadata, uh, but the panels don't get to see that. Um, uh, so there's not a requirement that you have to describe all of your funding here, but it is um, an example of an indicator that can be used. Uh, and so for me, this is now, um, if you've got a lot of funding, so for my case study, we've got over 20 different funding sources, um, I could spend an entire page detailing all of that, and that would be very, very bad strategy. So um, I've not actually added this into my own case study yet, but when I do, I'm going to be doing this as two or three lines that say, uh, this is the number of projects, the total value, uh, and now a list of all of the funders. Um, and if I'm going to privilege any, I'm going to talk in more depth about um, what in my discipline would be the, the gold standard stuff, so uh, the UKRI funding. And it was a flagship, million-plus project, um, etc. And I might just kind of give that a little bit more space to uh, allow that to shine, because most people will then say, well, yeah, well, this must be uh, above two-star research, given that it was part of that project. Now, of course, it's an indicator, so um, this is not reality, and we all know that rubbish research gets published from fancy researchers and research groups and, and projects. Um, uh, and so what's, what's controversial about this is that when um, the panels that have, have told us uh, to use these indicators, when, when, they, when, they, when, they, when they do this, they're given examples of things which are actually things that will bias uh, a reviewer towards believing that it's high quality rather than actually being evidence of high quality. So the fact that it's in a peer-reviewed journal, well, all of the one-star research that I've ever read has been in a peer-reviewed journal as well. Yeah. Um, so the fact that it's in a peer-reviewed journal doesn't mean it's two-star or above. Um, uh, and I forget all the other ones that, that, that they've got there. So, so effectively, you are looking for these things that will make people feel impressed. Um, and so then the prestige uh, is, is that journal that, for my discipline, we know is the journal. Uh, or it's uh, not just uh, a book, it's a monograph, and it's published by that publisher. Um, uh, and, uh, and yeah, it's not just that it's peer-reviewed. Um, now, here is a review by this person uh, in this outlet of my monograph. Uh, and now I'm thinking, yeah, this must be really impressive. Um, now, of course, it could be some completely panning review uh, that says the opposite, which I'm not including in there. So, yeah, it's, it's potentially misleading. But um, so, uh, so I'm asking, how can I uh, list these these indicators in a way that is going to be very space efficient? So for me, this is not per, uh, per article. Um, Unless there's one article that has a specific, very good indicator, such as one of the ones in the... A list and the panel criteria that it's won a prize or something, mm -hmm. then you might, you know, w w one of those rare ones yes. that actually fit into the criteria that they or the the uh, suggestions that they make, then yeah. that could be at that particular. If you can do that space efficiently in brackets or with an asterisk yes. or something like that, then then yeah. Yeah, I'm talking brackets and italics. Yeah, 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 that kind of thing. And also um, making a cross reference. This was done in 2014. Quite a lot of case studies. Uh, the fact that this is also in the output section. Um, I, I wouldn't rest on that. Because I was going to say, would you encourage that? 
Um, so I wouldn't encourage it. No, and I'm not doing that in my case study. Um, I see it quite often. People do it, and yeah. if people want to do it, then I'm okay with that. Um, uh, and the reason that it's not a priority is that it's 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 quite a fallible indicator because uh, we know from REF 2014 that quite often. Uh, people would look at uh, case studies uh, just in terms of the panel process potentially before they'd reviewed those outputs. So actually, yeah, at this point, I need to make a decision. Is this high quality research? And I can't just cross refer and find out what's, what grade that, that got. Um, you could potentially refer back to RAF 2014 scores, um, but that only works if you know that your output profile was all above two star. Uh, if it was, in theory, you could refer to that and say, well, this was submitted um, and got to two star or above, we know from, from RAF 2014. But um, yeah, it's one thing that you could potentially add into the mix. Um, but what is not good, I think, is when you see yeah, a couple of lines now per article, or output uh, justifying why that is two star or above. That's now doubling the length of this uh, as a section. Uh, and we have to bear in mind that we're asked to judge the quality as a body of work. So I can now look at all of that and create a text, a bit of text at the bottom that explains why as a body of work this is two star or above. Yeah, so I routinely put a comment like that in section three saying just, just justify with some narrative. Um, I had a case study recently where I did not do that because it was just so, so obvious from section two that it was just so good. I mean, mm. it was, they they had justified, this was the first to look at this really, this first study of this kind to look at this really big product pro mm -hmm. problem <laughs> with this uh, sample size and this kind of cohort and this coverage of potential mm -hmm. Uh, participants in the study and I, I just thought wow um, that was super impressive so I thought well you know you can't really miss that yeah. so there's no need Job to duplicate done. that. Yeah I know one other That's um, rare. Uh, ref reviewer consultant who recommends uh, that people do the full justification of, of quality in section two and integrate that in and then you don't need to do it there. Um, uh, I, I put this question out to the Association of Research Managers and Administrators. Um, what are you advising people to do and what are you doing in your institution in Section 3? Um, and, uh, and one of the most common responses was actually nothing. Yes, the RAF guidance says very specifically that you need to justify the quality in Section 3. We are ignoring that and we're not including any, any information on that at all because we're trying to save space. And actually, uh, these are in journals or they're, they're monographs published by publishers that anyone in that discipline instantly looks at and knows this is incredible. Um, so why waste the space when we know that everyone will instantly see this as, as high quality? And in some ways, it's actually calling attention to the fact that, you know what, I'm going to let this speak for itself without having to talk journal impact factors or citations or anything else. Which are actually not yeah. one of the indicators to put in. No, so it's interesting. It's quite conspicuous by its absence. So it doesn't. Um, so elsewhere in the the RAF twenty twenty one guidance, it um, outlaws journal impact factors and uh, tells you whether or not you're allowed to um, uh, whether they're going to use citations. Uh, you're still, if they are going to use citations in your panel, um, you're they still allowed to include them. it because they'll get that from I think yeah. Clarivate on on the day. 
Um, but when you look at the list of, of potential indicators of quality you can use, uh, both of those are conspicuous by their absence. Uh, and then there's one criteria, which is effectively citations in, um, in another word, but without using the word citation. So it's the fact that it's being used widely beyond your discipline uh, and evidence that it's being used widely. Um, I'm not quite sure how you do that um, without using a lot of words, <laughs> without citations, but uh, it's, it's very clear that that's not there. So I'm suggesting people don't use citations, despite that it's not, the fact it's not been explicitly outlawed in the ref part, uh, in the impact part of the guidance. Yeah, and um, about the question where to put that and whether to have an additional something mm. or whether the evidence speaks for itself mm. um, for the particular audience, whether it will be obvious to any potential mm. assessor. Um, if that's the case, then absolutely fine. If not, I would err on the side of helping the reader to tick the box, putting yourself in the shoes of the reader who have to read this very quickly, mm. potentially, or uh, many in quick succession, and just giving them that little bit of a little bit of a hand to not have to worry about is this going to be good research or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're still relying on you, but on what you say. Let's just make their job easy, absolutely. Yes, very much so. So, uh, plan A, perhaps, it's just so obvious uh, from that list. I need to say no more. I'll let it speak for itself. Um, uh, the plan B is... And ideally have that corroborated with someone working in a different part of the UA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that might feel great to me, but yeah, absolutely. This is going to have to really clearly speak. Plan B is um, uh, uh, I'm listing indicators. Um, uh, there are examples in the REF guidance. Um, in our paper, we've got a table with lists of indicators that we found. Um, in for... famous table 17 in our yes, current. <laughs> indeed, that's right. So have a look at the paper. You see more ideas there. And on my blog, my latest REF intelligence blog, um, I've just been collating ideas as I come across them uh, in universities where I'm looking at REF impact case studies. Um, and uh, and ha, great idea, I'll add that to the blog. Um, so there's a, quite a lot of indicators you can choose from and you can get quite creative. Um, but if at the end of the day you have no indicators uh, of quality, uh, and especially if you think there might be things that might uh, ring alarm bells for people, so this is not peer-reviewed, it's a final report to a funder, for example, uh, then your final option is to integrate a narrative justification. So, for example, as you just described, uh, that can be integrated into chapter, sorry, section two, uh, or I can create a narrative justification going through the output criteria with a justification for why as a body of work, this is original, it's significant, and it's robust. Rather, that's not in the guidance. Um, uh, the, the REF team have said that that is an acceptable um, option uh, for, for demonstrating that, and that was the, the primary way in which people did it in, uh, in REF 2014. And it should not be very long. When we say yes. narrative justification, we're talking one or two sentences. Yes, yeah, yeah, like three lines, um, yeah. that, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, because again, it's an eligibility check. So, shall we go to section four? Is there anything else yes. we need to say on that? Are we, are we good on no, that? I think we're all right with yeah. section three. If so not, this is where it if, gets if there's any questions, any more questions that you have, yeah. do get in touch. <laughs> I mean, Indeed. I'm not promising more answers, but you can always try. <laughs> so, first thing in the details of, of, of the impact section, um, I, I've seen lots of different things. So, sometimes I've seen um, problem statement. Um, so it's often first sentence of a summary uh, and then expanded a bit more. There's maybe a, a, a short paragraph or half a paragraph just really yeah. explaining the problem. Um, 
And depending on your impact, um, that can be quite powerful where I'm saying, well, for my own case, for example, um, it's all about peatlands. Um, and, uh, and I love peatlands. I've worked in them all my, all my career and it's obvious why peatlands are important to me. Uh, and um, uh, Tom McDaniel, impact officer in our school, reviewed my first draft uh, of my case study. He's like, yeah, it all feels a bit marginal. I mean, it's just peatlands. I mean, why peatlands important? And um, I'm like, ah, um, do you not realise that they're the world's largest carbon store and they store almost twice as much carbon as all the world's forest? And the fact that they're degraded is a, a key reason why we're going to miss our, our, our climate mitigation targets. Um, uh, and, and all these other things. Like, oh, yeah, that sounds quite important. Well, why didn't you tell me that? Uh, yeah, it wasn't that obvious, was it? So a problem statement that kind of gives that context for where someone else might say, eh, sounds a bit marginal. Actually, no, it's not because of this. It can be quite useful. And that anecdote very much underlines that you need more pairs of eyes. Yes. <laughs> and exactly. that, what, what we've been saying all along, will this be obvious to anyone in your unit of assessment, even if it's, you know, you're a supportive impact officer? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah. So it's great. So yeah, Tom's been great. He's given me loads of great advice in my case study, and um, and you might think that in theory I should know what I'm doing, but yeah, that second pair of eyes, brilliant. So, problem statement is one thing you might want to go in there. The other common thing that that, that you'll see will be a pathway to impact. So we've not got yet to the uh, the 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 impacts per se, but there's a bit of preamble to explain how we got from the research to the impact. But here's a really big temptation, and I see lots of these which are just hugely long. So for me, a half page is already getting to, yeah, this yeah. is maybe too much. Um, but you quite often see up to a page on this kind of preamble, um, and I'm just kind of waiting to get to the bit that I can mark you for, and I'm not getting there. <laughs> So, yeah, so for me, if you have less than two pages, you can't spend a page yeah. on something that you can't get. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, but it's so tempting. And I think it's yeah. tempting because, well, that's what happened. That was the reality. And I spent a lot of time doing all this stuff. And it's, it's quite impressive uh, that I've got all that media attention. And, uh, and we went to all these different um, policy seminars and all these different policy processes and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but for me, uh, you, need to, you need to ask, what is the function that that pathway test is serving in terms of your scores. And for me, the key function that it is serving is attribution. So I'm going through and I'm, I'm weeding out well, what is the narrative I need in here that makes a connection from that underpinning research to these impacts. And all the other stuff is spurious detail and I'm yes. fairly hard-nosed on pulling that out. Um, yeah. Th yeah, that can happen not just at the beginning, but it can happen anywhere in the case in in section four. So maybe even at the end of the second last paragraph, you might throw in that you have given a keynote at this conference, and mm. I'm thinking, ouch, for two reasons. Even though this may have been one of the highlights of you know of yeah. your year, I or, feel really proud of this. You know, <laughs> this that, so congratulations! I'm very very happy for you. <laughs> However. A, this could be academic impact, mm. if anything, and B, well, then what happened next? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. If did it was anything, a pathway, then I want to know, did anyone did uh, anything change as something? A, yeah, yeah, did anything change as a result or not change? You know, mm -hmm. when I say change, I include non-change, mm. but uh, just because you went and did this doesn't tell me that much. Mm. Yeah, I mean, your worst case scenario, and this is, this is really devastating, is where you get case studies where you're reading through the pathway 
and there's more pathway, and then there's more pathway, and then eventually it's ended, and ha, huh, we never got to the impact. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and at that point, you've got something which is one star at best, uh, unclassifiable at worst, in terms of there, there, is, there is no impact here, there, there's nothing to see, guys. <laughs> However, at this, at this stage, it's January now, or maybe February by the time mm. you listen to this, um, there may be still something that you can do about exactly, this. Yeah. And hopefully the impact is there, but you are not quite sure which part of it needs to be in the case study. So what we then sometimes do, or what you can do, is to ask the question, okay, so what happened next? What happened then? What happened then? How did that change? Who heard that? Who then did something about this? Hmm. And what I've seen once or twice now yeah. is that... There are answers sometimes. Yeah, that yeah. there are answers that yeah. people were maybe not confident to include because... They were being super, super careful of overclaiming. Mm -hmm. So, but now you've got the claim. That's going to see if we can evidence it. Absolutely, if it can be attributed, if you can make the link to your research, go for it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I, I think what, what's devastating is that quite often the, 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 there's very little um, there, and these are things that people have spent their entire careers on, you know, years and years of work. And to break the news to them that this isn't impact can be really, really quite upsetting for some people. So uh, being able to very quickly say, well, actually, you've got two options now. Um, one is you need to go and look to find out what happened next and do some evaluation. Uh, or, uh, great, you've got this fantastic platform because of all the fantastic engagement you've done. What you now need to do is to build on this Generate to actually impact. make something happen. Yeah. <laughs> and this is how long you've got left. So uh, Yeah, that second option is getting increasingly more difficult now. Exactly. So yeah, yesterday I was uh, with uh, with some of my colleagues and we're up against it. We've got until 31st of, uh, of July um, and we're looking for some economic figures in here in the tens of millions uh, benchmark. Uh, to, uh, benchmarking this so that we're in, a, in a, the clear four CASAR category in my unit assessment for an economic impact. Um, uh, and we've got um, a £10 million uh, potential uh, on, uh, on the table, but we've got to get that all signed, delivered by 31st of July for this to be eligible. And if it happens after that, yeah. Uh, so we're just bending all what we've got. And I've just been very open with everyone to say, well, look, uh, the university is helping to fund this and they're allowing me to spend time with you making this happen. But there is some payback here, which is that the university wants to claim this. And that's why we're trying to do this a bit fast. And everyone's been like, yeah, cool. We all have different deadlines for different reasons. And if that's a deadline that's important to you, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> So, yeah, it's surprising. It's, it's, yeah, I'm not going to say it's never too late because it will be too late this summer. <laughs> but yeah. at the moment, it still might not be too late. You still might be able to bring something back from the brink. Yeah. Uh, I just had a thought when you said that it can be a little bit tricky to be told that this is not actually impact and that mm. maybe this doesn't quite work. Um, I had a case recently where uh, of a continuing case studies. That's a whole different beast, of course. Mm. But I had this, this case where... In the first draft that I gave feedback on, or in my, my first feedback round, um, I said, um, look, this is, I, I, this, is, this is outside of the eligibility period. This is back in 2010, what, what are you doing with this? Mm. I said it nicely, I hope. Yes. <laughs> um, and then they came back to me and said, well, yeah, the guideline was put in place in 2010 and it cites my research. And I'm thinking, yes, great, link established. Mm -hmm. And I've got in touch with the uh, relevant authorities and they have confirmed that this guideline is still in place and operational and therefore 
I think it's a continuing impact. And I said, well, probably is, but you're not claiming anything beyond having shaped the policy. You're not saying anything about what effect the policy has had since the start of the current eligibility period. And that's where the focus needs to be. That's where yeah. it falls down for me. So, so, you know, something that, you know, great that mm. you have shaped policy back when that is still in place. Fabulous. Mm. But the claim is the shaping the policy. It's not in, in that particular case. It's not anything that has happened since. So in that case, what I'm doing is I'm saying, right, so that's not the impact. That's the pathway. And so you yeah, by, by now, it's the, you know, it may have been impact at the time, last yeah. round. This but time it's the pathway, yes. For 2021, you've got to reframe that because if you if that looks like a claim, that isn't an ineligible claim and yeah. that's not going to do you any, any good. Um, but actually, you need to know that it's the, it, that that policy or guideline would not have been possible without our research. So that then, what I'm going to claim as the impact of that guideline uh, since 2014 is uh, is is now eligible. And so I would build that into my pathway section, and, and in something like that for the avoidance of doubt, I would actually clearly label that paragraph as pathway to impact. Yes. Uh, not claiming this, but just so you know, this is where it came from, and this is why now, um, in the current period, uh, you can see this number of people have benefited from the application of this guideline. Yes, and um, in a more positive example, I was recently looking at a case study that, unfortunately, like so many, or frustratingly, like so many case studies, does not fit nicely into the arbitrary cut-off dates. Mm -hmm. So... They had some really good work starting in, what, 2011 or something mm. um, that had not generated really tangible impact of sorts by the time of the last census date, um, but has since. But without the work that they did before the eligibility period, it would not have worked. Mm. So they had to put quite a bit of pathway in and I let them get away. Well, you know, <laughs> I did not... Um, I was not super rigorous in cutting all of that because it was essentially uh, it, it was essential to understand the impact and to have that attributed. And I, I said specifically, this looks really convincing to me. Just by the fact that you're labeling this as pathway, that's why I'm telling this, um, by the fact that you're labeling this as pathway, it makes everything else more credible. Yeah. It looks like you know what you're doing. It looks like you're not overclaiming, which means that whenever you do claim impact, I don't have to have this suspicion that, oh, is this really impact? Is it eligible or not? Mm. I, I trust you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So much more we could talk about and we yeah. could go down a whole big wormhole on, on continuation case studies. And yeah. Yeah, for me, it's, it's not that big a deal whether you tick the box one way or the other, whether you get it right or wrong. There's no mechanism I can see by which you could get... Um, penalised for that and, and there is a lot of grey area in that decision so let's hope you avoid that one for a moment because we're going to be here all night um, <laughs> and just start moving on to those impacts so um, one of the bits of evidence coming out of the, the research that we did was your quantitative linguistic analysis showing uh, the importance of the use of subheadings and interestingly panel D, arts and humanities, uh, the disciplines where you're least likely to see subheadings, uh, certainly in a, a chunk of text that long, uh, who are mo more likely to actually use that. Uh, the effect side was, was biggest in panel D. So a very different style of writing um, and different way of structuring to what you might be used to in your academic work. 
But uh, it's not just that there are subheadings. For me, there's something about the content of those subheadings. So ideally, um, I don't want just thematic subheadings. Um, in some cases, you've got uh, subheadings um, named after individuals um, who, who were involved in it, um, or that actually when they read the subheadings, that they're, they're all pathway. Oh, oh yeah, are you, is, is this bad examples? Yes, this is bad examples, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, so essentially what you've got is this kind of meta-narrative in your subheadings. And what does that meta-narrative tell me? Does it tell me, does it all read like research? Does it all read like pathway? Or does it all read like impact? And for me, I want each of those subheadings to read like impact. And ideally, in the same way that we've done with our paper, uh, each of these um, is now a, a very short sentence that articulates what that impact is. So we're getting a really clear sense of, ha, huh, this impact. Right, and some people actually number them impact one, impact two, so absolute avoidance of doubt. Yeah, this is an impact, and it's the first one, and this is what it is. So, so yeah, subheadings uh, is yeah. a useful thing. What about then the, the, the text um, that comes after this? So uh, I'd be interested in what you think of this, because in my mind I have this formula, and I find the formula useful for writing an impact case study, and yet I very rarely actually see that formula, even in what I'm writing myself. So uh, in, my, in my head, I've got this formula, which is I want to, first of all, make an impact claim. So the, the first sentence um, under my heading is, uh, this is the impact. And I want to have uh, an element of that impact claim, which is significant, and I want an element of that impact claim that is uh, far-reaching. It may be a single sentence, or it may be, here is what's significant, and now second sentence, here is what is uh, far-reaching. So I've got a claim that is high magnitude, and it's a specific claim, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then the, the, the next sentence after that is uh, the evidence. So I'm, immediately backing that up. So that's an impressive claim. Wow, that's really high magnitude and specific and great. Uh, but now here is the evidence for the significance component. And here is the evidence now for the reach component. Now, or in terms vice versa, of, depending on yeah. yeah. But it's, it's, it's all there and it's clearly linked and, yeah. and I can see what I need. Um, and I think in an ideal world, that formula really works because now as a reviewer, I've got the claim, I know what it is from the, from the heading. Now, yeah, that's it in much clearer language now because I've got a full sentence and I can see the significance, I can see the reach, and here's the evidence, tick. Uh, and, uh, and I've made a judgment uh, based on that initial sentence. Yeah, that feels like three star, that feels like four star. Uh, I wonder what the evidence for that looks like, great. Um, in terms of how that actually reads on the page, um, the, the narrative is, is usually a bit more interesting than that, and it's not quite as obvious as that, but I'm still doing a checklist in my head uh, under each of those subheadings. Have I got a claim, uh, an explicit claim? Is it specific and high magnitude? Is it got a significance component, a reach component, and have I evidenced it? And so I think the key thing is, rather than the, perhaps a, a template or, or a formula, it's a checklist, and I'm making sure all of those are contained in it. Yeah, I... The, the, the bit of the checklist more resonates with me, yeah. to be honest, because yeah. I, I rarely see paragraphs that conform no. to that. No, you're right. I, I, am, I mean, these are the things that I'm looking for, mm. plus the link back to the of research course, yes. with hopefully the yeah. pathway section. You know, in some, in some case studies, it's very clear. You've got mm. one significant research finding mm. that has one particular application or a range of applications mm. that perhaps, depending on the unit of assessment are, um, or depending on the discipline, are evidence through a pathway or, oh. sorry, a patent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was getting late. So where you've got the um, 
maybe a pattern and then you say and this and this and this application arose mm -hmm. from that mm -hmm. um, in a case like that you can sometimes fairly easily establish the pathway for the whole thing in one paragraph at yeah. the beginning yeah. sometimes it's not as clear mm -hmm. sometimes you do need some more dotted around um, links mm -hmm. saying this is uh, uh, and this is how we know that this ha could not have happened without our research yeah. Um, it's really case by case, isn't it? It's, very much so, In yes. some cases, it can be implicit, and that's fine. Um, in other cases, well, the first claim is going to be linked directly back to the research. Maybe, actually, the, it's just linked back to the pathway, and the pathway is what links directly back to the research. And in some cases where you've got a really long causal chain, actually, um, the, the, the last impact is causally linked to the previous impacts in the chain. Um, and actually yeah. what you see is when you look at it at a landscape kind of scale, you see that connectivity going from the research to the pathway to impact one, impact two, and then eventually to impact three. And you don't have to link every single one of those claims back, back to, to the, the research, original no, research yeah. because, well, you're then just repeating yourself. But, but that connectivity is, is necessary. And, and in the paper, we've got a lot of evidence of attributional phrases uh, and different forms of cohesion, including this kind of argumentative form. What's the technical name for it? Um, not the... Uh, deep, deep cohesion. Yeah, deep cohesion, yeah. So, yeah, so uh, label. the fact that these ideas are actually connected together um, uh, coherently into some kind of a, an argument. Uh, and one of the bits of evidence we've got in in this is not it's not just that the high scoring ones have more attributional phrases uh, it's that they're attributing to impact uh, generally speaking um, so let's keep our eye on the ball the whole time and we've got this attribution these links uh, in our language all the way through uh, all, all the way through this text in section four uh one while we're talking about could this have happened, could this impact have happened without the research? Mm. Um, especially with the economic impact, I sometimes find that there's a weak link where you say, well, you know, they ha the, the, the company has had a rise in annual turnover to of, of, of whatever percentage, and then problems that often crop up here is that I'm not told from which year to what year, mm -hmm. um, or I'm not told is this just one particular product of the company? Does the company have only one product, mm -hmm. um, the, the one that you've worked with, or is this part of a massive product portfolio? And actually, you know, how do you know mm -hmm. that this product that you have had anything to do with, does that this was driving the uh, increase in whatever indicator mm -hmm. they use? So, mm -hmm. um, I'm going to stop talking about that bit because that goes us into a rabbit hole. But it's something that I see quite often. And that's yeah. but how do you fix that? And um, quite often, I think the the only solution to, to that sometimes is a testimonial. Um, yeah. it, it, there's no kind of evidence you can use to really clearly infer exactly what's going on in terms of that that particular product or that feature or whatever it is. Unless um, you're lucky enough, and they've written about it in the annual mm -hmm. report that's on the company website. Yeah, and then when you're in that domain where it's economic impacts, very often you'd love to ask a question, but you're pretty sure they're not going to tell you because it's commercially sensitive. Um, and I've got a blog on that. Um, 
that, that suggests uh, ways in which you can get that kind of data. So I'd always, first of all, just not do it by email, go and try and talk to people, because once you've got that no, it's very hard to come back from it. But I go, I ask a difficult question, I get a no, but I've come with a bunch of sub-questions. Well, here, here's something that's less sensitive, might you be able to give me that? And now here's something which is actually just a proxy. So I now know that it's the market leader. Um, and uh, there are only three main companies in this market, um, and uh, and it's a market that's worth hundreds of millions of pounds. And that instantly I know, okay, it's the market leader in a market of that size with this many major competitors uh, up against them. This is probably something in the millions rather than in the thousands, um, and you get a sense of the uh, of an order of magnitude, even if you haven't got the economic data that you would ideally want. Um, so that that kind of specificity, and and I, and I think. There's lots of people who have these kind of, well, it's millions of, and I'm not really very sure. Uh, but yeah, uh, that vagueness gives me a, a sense of, yeah, are you hiding something? Are you overclaiming? Uh, and and uh, try and ask the questions or use some proxies or triangulate it in some way uh, through a testimonial to, to give that sense of rigor to this. Otherwise, yeah, it feels like you're waving your hands. And on that note of specificity, um, something that you can normally influence um, is time references. So quite mm -hmm. often I see something like over the past three years and I'm thinking, is this counted from when I read this or from when you wrote it probably six months ago? Mm -hmm. Or is this, yeah. are you counting ahead to, you know, when they might read it, which is 2021? Mm -hmm. So, you know, this project started in 2014 and over the past three years we've, yeah. and I'm immediately yeah. thinking, yeah. well, so... My advice would be to use absolute, what I call absolute time references. So between 2015 and 2018 yeah. is a lot more specific and just gives the reader a more uh, a bit better indication of the scale. Especially if you say something over the past three years, such and such number of people have benefited from mm. this. Mm. And by the time the person, well, or... Let me frame this differently. If you say since 2015, so and so many people have, mm. maybe your data is or was updated in 2019 or at best by July 2021. Mm -hmm. Sorry, 2020. But the person might be reading it a year later and then that's the same yeah. number of people over a longer time period, mm -hmm. which actually diminishes the research. But that's something where you can very easily fix that by saying exactly for what time period you've got the numbers um, so as to not accidentally uh, weaken your mm. the scale of your claim. And Again, then, I'm not picking here, but... No, and then that claim, um, you, for, you, you're going to have a, a cross-reference then to your corroborating sources. Uh, and I think that those, those references are, are important. So in the examples of weak lists of corroborating uh, evidence, you've just got these um, unreferenced lists. So it's just a list of URLs in the, in the, in the worst case examples. And I'm like, well, what does that actually corroborate? And I'm gonna have to follow the link and then work out where on earth that's meant to, to be linked. So throughout section four, I've got these cross references to, to the um, to section five, the corroborating sources. Uh, and I'm not wasting those corroborating sources on um, on pathways to impact and uh, and pretty much yeah 80 90 percent of the case studies I look at uh, you go to section five and the majority of the uh, of the sources are evidence that there was a pathway and there's nothing wrong with that but it's a waste um, when you could be using that to actually um, corroborate an impact which is what we're being asked uh, asked to do 
Which leads me to, I think, maybe the last topic of conversation on um, on, on section four, which is evidence. Um, and uh, yeah, even the best case studies that, that, that I've seen um, uh, over the last year, uh, the, there's always something that I think, you know what, but you could just edge that evidence a little bit forward. Um, you could do something a bit more impressive there. Um, uh, you could back that up, you could triangulate it, whatever. Um, and, and let's bear in mind that whilst the, uh, the, the impact has to have happened um, up until 31st of July, we've got to, until the end of the year to actually present the evidence for that. Uh, so uh, we can continue with that evidence collection process. And uh, you can refer back to uh, my paper on this, uh, um, which I, I read on the podcast at the end of last year, if you want a bit more on this. But um, uh, it's surprising when you, you get um, your researcher head on and start asking yourself the question, as a researcher, how would I go about collecting this? Add in a, a few um, extra helpings of common sense. And yeah, I could ask that kind of person. And that's what I would count. And well, we're going to do a survey now. One of the most common ones that, that I see, which is, which is a, a gift, is continuing professional development um, or, or training. And loads of researchers will do training um, uh, within companies of um, professionals or whatever as, as part of, uh, of their pathway to impact. And uh, if GDPR compliant, they can go back to those people. Then there's a very easy questionnaire that I can do with a tick at the bottom. Would you be willing to be contacted? Great. I can maybe go and do some telephone interviews with a few of those people. And now these people have gone all over the world. They're now in high positions in governments. They're potentially using some of the stuff from your research that was built into that training and they're changing the world. But you've got no idea. Uh, who knows? So it would be quite exciting when you go out and you start collecting that data. Uh, just what then begins to to just to fall out of that, but it takes some time, um, and yeah, I, I would always ask yourself: Is there something more you can do to to evidence this? Good good testimonials, poor testimonials. Um, this is one one of the things that you'll get in terms of of evidence. Um, what makes a good testimonial? Uh, something that evidences impact. Um, <laughs> It sounds repetitive, yeah. doesn't it? But, but rather than the pathway, so yeah. so so Prof. Reed came and spent all this time training our researchers, uh, our, our R and D team, and and helped us with this and helped us with that. And at no point have you actually ever said what the benefit was. Well, great, you've evidenced your pathway, but if you just go that one step further and tell me what the impact was, that would have a little bit more value. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, also, um, short. Mm -hmm. Testimonial quotations in the text should be short, ideally maybe a sentence, maybe even less, um, maybe two or three sentences, but anything longer than that yeah. distracts from your own narrative. And actually, the shorter the... Well, not, not necessarily, but if you've got a short, punchy testimonial, that sounds very uh, credible mm -hmm. quite often. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of you will be familiar with my approach to this, where I do an interview. Um, I, I was in um, Madrid um, a few weeks ago, but before, before Christmas, um, and uh, I managed to pin down someone from DEFRA that I'd been trying to interview for over a year. 
Uh, we had so many missed opportunities and then all of a sudden I bumped into her queuing up for coffee and uh, great um, might I be able to do that interview with you and she was like well I'm now chief negotiator for UK, UK government on whatever it is um, so um, so yeah I've got loads of stuff on but um, yeah I have breakfast here at 8 o'clock um, before I go into my negotiators meeting at 8.30 see you here at 8, 8 o'clock tomorrow morning um, and uh, and so yeah, we in the end um, it was quite clear she didn't want to talk work while she was eating. So at the end, I got ten minutes to do my my, my interview. But in my ten minutes, I managed to get it. Um, uh, so now I transcribed that. Uh, I gave her a, a consent form at the time that she signed. Um, I, I came prepared. I was looking for a few people, <laughs> um, and uh, I then sent the transcript and I excerpted. But also did a little bit of rewording there, where um, what she said was quite long-winded. Once it was transcribed, it wasn't grammatically very, um, very clever. Um, and so this was a kind of a cleaned up and shortened, yeah, this was the key thing that, that, that you said. And you can see how this is based on what you said. So yeah, I didn't make this up. Yeah, great. Um, uh, and, um, and you did say at the beginning, this was based on Newcastle research. So I've just added in um, to this, that bit, that based on Newcastle research, that's based, uh, it's linked into the, in, into the quote. Uh, would you be happy going on, on record saying this? If so, can you stick it on that added paper? And to my surprise, actually, I've been advising people, if you're working um, uh, with civil servants, um, uh, last time round, um, there was a, a, a system where you had to, um, the, the civil servant had to fill in a form, which eventually then went through a system, and then you got a testimonial spewed out from a deputy director that you'd never met once they'd done all the internal checks. Uh, in this case, this was actually someone now who's very, very senior in civil service. Um, and she was like, yeah, I'll just stick it on lighted paper for you. And the next day, um, through pots, um, yeah, on death row, lots of headed paper, great. Um, so it was a lot easier than I expected it to be. But the key thing here was that I was able to, to really probe and go deeper and deeper. And within 10 minutes, I knew what I was looking for. I knew she was the one person who might be able to evidence this one thing that she was pretty sure was linked to our research. Um, and sure enough, she was, and, and we got there. Um, but but took some probing, and I knew what I was looking for, and, and great. But uh, had I just asked her, can you write me a testimonial? A, she wouldn't have done it. It was hard enough to put her down for 10 minutes. But B, she probably wouldn't have gotten to the nub of that one thing that was the thing that I knew was the gap in my narrative that would make that, that final claim really sing. And if you've gone through all the pains of getting that testimonial, and making sure you've got that one thing that you need to evidence, make sure you do put that bit in the actual section yes. for narrative. Um, because the panel are instructed, are, well, it says it very clearly in the guidance that they're not going to, or they're not instructed to access anything for additional evidence. Yeah, they'll, they'll look at them for all so the purposes or if there's I some would, reason why they're suspicious or whatever, but generally speaking, they're not going to read I would just assume that yeah. Section 4 is your one chance. Yeah, there was And everything else is around and just whatever you want the panel to really know, put it in the main text. Yeah, I just, just wanted to emphasise that. 
Yeah, and, and, and you know, you might think that's an obvious thing, but disastrously, there was one entire university in REF 2014 that instructed, and it was a, a top-down edict, and someone in the centre had misinterpreted the guidance, and they'd said um, uh, to take out all testimonials from within it because they weren't meant to be there, and across that university's submissions, uh, they were all taken out, and I don't know what that did to their scores, but it can't have been good. Yeah. <laughs> Can you believe <laughs> While we're about, uh, mm. talking about uh, things that might seem obvious to us by now, yeah. <laughs> um, things that I've seen recently is where, um, for example, the eligibility period is very clearly stated mm -hmm. in the guidance. Mm. And sometimes I see things that, you know, the impact period is starting um, uh, as 2010 to ongoing or something yeah. like that. It's a and little throwaway phrase that they've written in there because that is the reality. That's when the research project started. But instantly, it set my alarm bells ringing. Yeah, ring. it's not even, not even the... I mean, it's not even the research project. It's the impact period. Yeah. And even if the impact started in 2010, it doesn't matter yeah. because it's That's outside of the eligibility period. Yeah. Exactly. So, yes, great. The impact started then. However, it has now turned into a mm -hmm. pathway. What you're claiming is no earlier than August 2013. Mm -hmm. I'm being very specific there and I even advise to put in the month if you are going to use 2013 mm -hmm. I say you know yeah, from October 2013 or whatever <laughs> to avoid to be super yeah. clear that you're not claiming anything that happened in May that year yeah. <laughs> maybe a bit over the top but that's, um, and, and if there are doubts on that I, I, I actually integrate that into the testimonials as well so um, in my 2014 case that I moved 18 months before the census date um, and we've done new underpinning research we got impact from that new underpinning research so I had something that was going to be eligible for Birmingham City but um, in all the testimonials I, I asked people to to say since 2012 um, uh, and, and my name so it was very clear that um, since 2012 uh, our work with Prof Reed has done whatever it is and now yeah okay clearly I, I was working with them before then but I'm asking you to tell me about what's happened since 2012 so this is clearly eligible. Uh, being aware, of course, that um, uh, University of Leeds was submitting um, effectively the same case study based on the work that I'd done there. So, yeah. So just just being very upfront about mm. this. So what is to say, alleviate, um, avoiding doubt about eligibility is something mm. that it's it's just an avoidable mm. uh, ammunition that you might be giving a potentially cynical reviewer mm -hmm. who is reading the I don't know how many of the case study on mm. that day. Mm. Um, and another thing that I thought was really, probably really easy to implement and really a really obvious thing to do right now is to use the formatting guidelines. Um, <laughs> so it says... Yeah, I love how you, 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 attention to detail in these case studies, you see things I just miss. And this is a great example. Yeah, it's my past life as a proofreader, right? <laughs> so, um, so it says very clearly, Arial 11 two centimetres each, uh, all sides and uh, single-spaced. Mm -hmm. I looked this up just yesterday because I was looking at a case study that kind of looked a little bit different and I was thinking, what, what, why is that? And what I'd done was use Arial 10.5. And because REFS very clearly specifies this time around, not last time around, I wonder why they did that. <laughs> um, they very clearly specified no smaller than 11. So if you are going to do that, you are essentially cheating. Mm -hmm. And 
you might think, that, oh, you know, if they're reading PDFs or printouts or whatever, they're not going to notice. However, you might get a reviewer who just reads loads of case studies and does notice that one looks kind of slightly different <laughs> and is starting to wonder why. It's just a risk you do not want to take. Exactly. I, I swear people, their grant applications getting rejected on the basis of a font size thing and just like, why? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And oh. I've, I've seen that in a few case studies recently. And I took this up with a... Um, with the per with the with my contact in that university, and said, you know, would you like me to make that comment everywhere? Wouldn't, and basically I said I would recommend, as soon as you at all can, getting those formatting requirements right because you have to do it anyway at some mm. point. The advantage of doing it now rather than later. I mean, this is not a case of submitting to this journal in their whole style referencing. This is not a case of that. This is clear. You know what it's going to be. You've got to do it anyway at some point for this. And it takes three clicks, right? Yeah. The reason why it's important to do that now is that the page limit is the real limit. I think we started this conversation or, you know, fairly early on, we talked about word limits. And um, the, the word limits are indicative. You can really play with them within, you know, within the guidelines of which parts matter more than others. But the real limit is the five pages. And until you formatted it in the way that is required, you don't know what your limit is. Mm. You don't see how much space you may have left. Mm -hmm. And mm. for some, that might not be an issue. If you've got currently four pages, then yeah, whatever, no problem. Mm. But if you've currently got five and a bit pages, <laughs> you want to get that right to know how much you may have to cut. Mm. Or if your case study is currently formatted in 1.5 space, then... Mm -hmm. Again, yeah. you might want to put in some more. Yeah, yeah. But you've got to know just that first. Yeah, yeah. I, I am suspicious when I see very, very short case studies. And maybe I shouldn't be, because in theory, maybe, yeah, in theory, you could potentially have a four-star case study and it's just very concise. But on a psychological level, when I've got there's loads of blank space and you haven't used all the pages, I'm thinking that this is going to be thin on the ground. Yeah, um, same here. I want you to get on the fifth page. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder why that is. Is that just subconscious bias in our part, or, or is that a real thing? Um, yeah, I mean, you could probably analyse it, couldn't you? Just look at the word lengths of high versus low uh, in total. We could do that with our notice that if we. Oh yeah, yeah, I've done bothered. that. I've done that. I mean, for the Have whole. Oh yeah, 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 definitely shorter. Is it? I haven't. Yeah, I haven't yeah. done the stats, or I don't have. But no, yeah, clearly. Okay. There yeah. You go. Yeah. Uh, the gut feeling works. And that's the last thing, we're coming to the end now, and this is it's a combination of evidence and just that kind of experience that you have from having read loads and loads of these things. Um, and of course, uh, evidence is fallible, uh, more, even more so our experience is fallible, these are just our opinions. Um, so uh, use them uh, with care. Um, and uh, as you'll have heard, if you listen to the paper, there's a bunch of limitations to the paper, so uh, use our evidence with care as well. Uh, it's, it's very easy to overgeneralise and um, impacts can be so unique and the disciplinary context is, is again so unique and you don't know who the, the people are and you know, be different people so we only know that's not going to be us yeah exactly <laughs> thank god for that uh, <laughs> so um we've talked a little bit about corroborating sources um I mean, the key thing is that they're specific they're not really vague they're linked um to um 
to the, to, to the claims. Um, uh, uh, I like there to be something quite specific. So yeah, here is a policy document and I'm saying, and our research is cited on page five uh, to justify this particular policy instrument or something along those lines. So you don't need a lot of text, but something along those lines so that I'm not thinking, yeah, actually that's page five. Maybe this is just in the general introductory, introductory preamble background kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, there was one 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 case uh, case study group actually. There were two case studies in this in this set, which are policy uh, impacts, um, and they both uh, two separate case studies had s- uh, said we've got policy citations. I don't know why I was so suspicious, but um, I actually looked at the policy and and went through and I did a keyword search to find out where the citations were. And in both cases, they were in the introductory preamble uh, and they were in lists with lots of other references to say, yeah, generally speaking, this is what happens. And there was no actual link to the policy. In one case, in fact, I heard a second hand from another person advising someone that um, that they did a similar search and found that uh, it was in that introductory preamble, um, and they were basically saying that the, the, the that research was rubbish and they weren't going to be doing anything to do with that. And this policy was based on other research, and they were using that as citation, but it was cited. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, so yeah, maybe you might think you'll get away with that, but uh, you never know if they might actually read it and be suspicious. And yeah. <laughs> So yeah, anything else on collaborating sources, or are we pretty much there? I think we, I think we're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. So, final take-home messages, kind of, that stand back from all of this. Um, here's one final kind of take-home message in this. Well, who writes this? Um, does someone like you write this? And I know that you do actually offer services where you really help people write stuff pretty much from scratch. Uh, and you can do that off at the back of an interview or whatever else. I mean, that's that one approach. It's not the approach I'd recommend. I think um, having a researcher doing a first draft, having that ownership over it is important, but you're going to need some really significant editing help. And that needs to not just be a writer. This is expert editing help, because yeah. if you look at the kind of uh, very unique genre that emerged in REF 2014 that the high-scoring case studies had in common, you need someone who's got that experience of just reading and reading and reading, um, you're typically an impact officer in, in your institution, who is able to say, yeah, that's the kind of language and this is why it, it needs to be simpler, it needs to be more direct, and could you just uh, take it that one step further or not? But at the same time, I think, as a researcher, you need to have that ownership where when someone says, but couldn't you just say that one extra thing? Well, actually, I can't because it didn't happen. And, and no, that is an exaggeration. And, and I think you do need to draw that, that moral line sometimes. Um, yeah. So it's getting late. Um, and uh, we've been going on for a very long time now. Um, I said we could go on for ages. Um, uh, where do you go from, from here? Um, well, hopefully, uh, you go to reading our paper, and that gives you even more evidence to up your game and, uh, and really get the most from the impact that you've got and get the credit where that credit is, uh, is due. Um, go to uh, your impact officer. Um, uh, well, some universities, it's a central team. Uh, in some cases, a central person. <laughs> you may be very overworked. Yes. Um, uh, but, but these are people with unique expertise. So, so go and get, you know, get that help, get, get help from them. 
there are, are an army of, of people out there who can give you professional advice um, uh, externally, so Bella and I uh, being uh, part of that. Um, I will speak for Bella in terms of, of what she does. I, I'll tell you what I don't do, which is I don't do case study reviews. Um, uh, I did do that, um, but yeah, life got a bit too busy, so that's not something that I have time to do uh, these days. But um, uh, I do do ref trainings uh, a couple of types. One is a, is a full day training um, with a face-to-face -face afternoon session, which is a case study surgery. And we're looking in depth at case studies and answering specific questions in relation to specific case studies, but all based on the evidence which, which we go through in, um, in, in the first part. Um, and then the other is, is my ref webinar. Um, so this is, I think it's three hours um, going through the evidence um, that is in this paper uh, and, uh, and other stuff. Uh, and then, again, just taking those case studies and, and the specific issues you've got. Uh, as many people as you want can come. Uh, they're not all gonna get to answer, get their questions answered. And uh, you have to be quite targeted in, in, uh, in what you ask uh, and prioritize. Um, but my experience is because it's, it's a shared group session, a lot of the answers um, for one person are very useful for, for other people in the group uh, as well. And it can make a really big difference. Tell us more about the, the kind of stuff that, that you're doing at the moment, Belle. So I'm doing um, reviews of case study drafts uh, that typically takes the form of someone sends me something and I read the case study from a reader perspective. You've heard me talk about the reader quite a lot. Mm -hmm. So um, I will, you know, apply everything that we've said and more to your case study. Um, comment on the title, comment on all the sections, comment on what's pathway, what's impact, unless you've clearly labelled that. Um, make some suggestions for reformulating, restructuring some sections. Um, th those, those kinds of things. Uh, sometimes I make suggestions for wordings if I get the feeling that the case study is fairly advanced and it's not going to all change anyway. <laughs> um, and occasionally when I spot an opportunity to do something what Mark um, explained earlier, uh, where you could potentially get some more evidence or even generate some more impact or probe into new evidence parts that you have not evident uh, that you have not included yet. Um, I will make that suggestion too. Um, I when I started off doing this back in the summer twenty nineteen, there was more of that. Uh, as we're getting closer mm. to <laughs> the submission yeah, deadline, I'm getting slightly more cynical. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Um, so, uh, you, you were saying today you just got um, an entire faculty's impact case study. So that's an entire university. Uh, an entire so university. Yeah, there you go. Great. Quite, <laughs> quite daunting. <laughs> Um, so, 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 yeah. You, I may be fully booked at the moment. Be, yeah, um, but uh, if that is the case, well, get in touch but with me. Please, please do get in touch. Yeah. So um, it depends on what you have. If if it, if you're an academic, it's your case study, and you just want a fresh pair of eyes. So this person who sent me that massive uh, batch to review today um, said, "Oh, it would be really, really good to get an external eye on this because I've been reviewing them for a year now." Mm -hmm. So if you yeah. and your impact officer feel that way, then uh, do get in touch. Uh, I may be able to do, um, to fit something in, and later in the year, later in the uh, spring and summer. Um, yeah, and you go often go down and actually, and so you go spending a week at this university. 
um, yeah. talking to, to some of those case study authors based on that feedback. So, um, so yeah, you, you, you can do that, but uh, uh, don't worry if, if uh, yeah, the issue is that I think all of the best reviewers are getting fully booked at this point. Um, I, I know many other good people, so uh, if Bella is fully booked, I can put you in touch with, uh, with other, uh, other good reviewers. Um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, this is the, the busiest period for, for people like this, so uh, it's worth getting in soon. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll stick this in the show notes to, to uh, download the paper, which is now out. Um, it's, it's been a long time in coming, but we got there in the end, Bella. Did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so we said in the conclusion, I hope that this creates a level playing field. And while we've been talking about the kind of um, external services that do exist, you may or may not be able to afford that. Um, and I think it's really unfair that uh, in REF 2014, some of the richer universities lavished huge amounts of resource and uh, editing and uh, all that's going to help on, on their case studies and other universities just simply didn't have that at their disposal um, and it was the academics and in, some, in fact in some cases the academics alone um, and it was pretty much no help whatsoever um, uh, and, and that's not a play, not a level no. playing field. Um, no. And I think what our paper does is that it, it provides that evidence. It's an open access journal and now everyone has access to, to that evidence. Um, so use it wisely, um, up your game and, uh, and do your best. Make what you've done really sing and, uh, and get the value for, for the work, get the credit for the work that you've done. Yes. In that sense, good luck for your case studies and... Um... Indeed. Good luck with your your your, your party planning. Uh, as, as the, 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 the year has uh, I wasn't has actually what to say what I was thinking uh, of that, you know. Uh, uh, lots of, of discussion of, of post-draft parties. We're a long way off yet. It probably doesn't feel like it yet. But but you know what? Yeah, this is something to celebrate. I, I love oh, yeah? re re reading a great case study, uh, congratulating a case study author. There's this celebratory tone. And I hope that as we get these polished, there's going to be that sense of satisfaction that you sit there and think, yeah, no way. We did that. Wow. Um, and be proud of that. Yes. And I like reading case studies. I like reading about loads of different research. And sometimes I sit and think, wow, this is fascinating. I had no idea how this kind of thing works. And, you know, and uh, someone is reading it and someone is enlightened by your work. Brilliant. So write it well, communicate it well, and uh, and you get to inspire the world because this is public access. So great. Uh, enjoy. Uh, put this into practice and uh, and stay in touch. Yeah, get in touch. <laughs>